The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through chapters 2 through 7, of course, that chiasm we said is just simply a, a literary style of writing, of organization to help draw out the point. And uh, just for the sake of uh, remembrance and, and kind of drilling it into our heads, uh, what these look like, I'm going to ask Brother Robert to give us the next slide, the slide that has the, the uh, structure there, the A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A. And there we have the, the chiasm. A, uh, the uh, point A in the chiasm is the prophecy concerning the four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the world. Uh, Point B is God delivers Daniel's friends from Gentile persecution. Then point C is where we're jumping into tonight, and that's where God humbles the Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar, to demonstrate his sovereignty. And then we back, of course, back out with C prime, B prime, and A prime. And uh, we'll talk more about that as we go along through the rest of these weeks. But let's look, and let's just read chapter 4 and verse number 1 for the sake of time tonight. And then we'll pray, and then we'll jump right into things and move along in uh, these with these verses as we go through the message. Tonight. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this evening, the opportunity to be able to serve you tonight, to be in your house. And Lord, I ask now that you would bless everything that takes place, that you'd give me the words to speak as I deliver your message. Help us to hear from your word, apply it to our lives where it is applicable. Help us to, uh, uh, to use it to see how great and glorious you are and to help us to learn more about you tonight as well. Help us to, to, to honor and magnify you in everything that is said and done, that your will will be accomplished. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse number one says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Now, of course, we've spoken, we went through chapter number one. It was kind of like an introduction to the entire book, kind of set the scene, gave us some background of where it was coming from and what was going to be taking place. Then we entered into chapter number two, and uh, that was the, the, the vision or the dream of the statue. Uh, the star with a head of gold and ended up at the feet, of course. And of course, that rock fell from heaven and destroyed it to the base. And we went over all through all those things for a couple of weeks and discussed what that meant. And of course, the head of gold uh, was the beginning of a age of the Gentiles that began with the uh, dominion and the power of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's where we're at right now. We're in that, uh, as we read in Daniel chapter number four, we're in that first segment of this new uh, age of the Gentiles that was being introduced, of course. But step A in the chiasm was chapter number two, where Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the main point of that chapter was to explain God's, uh, God's plan for placing Israel under four successive Gentile authorities. And it would give Israel the context for knowing and understanding their fate while in captivity. Uh, so here are these, the, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian people. Many of the young ones, many of the wisest and strongest and the most capable were taken back to Babylon with the, with the armies. A remnant was left back in Jerusalem. We spoke about that. Uh, but of course, while all this is going on, the nation of Israel would have questions of, like, God, have you turned your back on us? Why are you allowing these things to happen? Well, the 
information and the events found in chapter number two, the fact that there was that statue that started with the head of gold and made its way on down, uh, representing Nebuchadnezzar to be first, and we know the second one to be the Medio persian Empire, and then, the, uh, then Alexander the Great to follow after that. And now we're in that fourth segment, if you may, where we said it was kind of like an a imperialistic alliance of different, uh, different groupings and such, and we're still in that time right there, that last portion, because when that rock falls is when is is the second coming of Jesus Christ that's when he established his millennial reign his his reign and rule forever and so we understand uh, where that's coming from with hindsight being 2020 but for the Jews at the time it and then Daniel's interpretation of that of course gave the opportunity for them to understand and realize that God had a plan for having them in captivity and it ultimately was going to lead to the Messiah being the one reigning forever and ever and ever, but there was a process that God had planned for first, and so it helped them to understand the fate, their, their fate while in captivity. Uh, step B in this chiasm, uh, we studied last time, of course, in chapter number three, and that's where Daniel's friends were spared supernaturally from that persecution of being thrown in the fiery furnace, and that chapter reminded Israel that though they were under Gentile oppression, that the Lord had not forgotten about them, had not left them, and, uh, and had not abandoned his people. Particularly, uh, the, the remnant within Israel was assured of the Lord's continuing favor, even in the midst of judgment. So part of what was leading up to the, the reign of the, uh, of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, that, kicked, was, that the process of getting there is kicked off with this age of the Gentiles, we understand part of the reasoning behind that is some judgment from God to his people for them having turned their back on him and, and him not turning their back, his back on them. Furthermore, it also illustrates that even though God has uh, written a coming history of empires and kings, he continues to exert his supernatural influence throughout all history. He already is going to He's, he foretells and he says, I'm going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to be the most powerful man in the world. And then there's going to be another empire that falls after him. And then there's going to be another one that falls after him, them. And then there's going to be another one that falls after them. But through it all, we find that chapter number three helps the children of Israel to understand that even though God has preordained worldwide and, and human uh, human empires to be in charge, he is still ultimately in control of all things. Daniel chapter number three also stands as a, as a refutation, if you may, against those who would say that God is just the God who kind of set things in motion and then kind of left it to be. Kind of like someone taking a top putting it on the, uh, holding it above a table, giving it a good spin and just walking away and letting it do its thing there. Some people would say that's how God works. He just says, well, here's what's going to happen and, and lets it, put in the, it be put in motion. And then he just kind of sits back and watches it all take place. But I'm here to tell you tonight, and it was, very, it was a, a, a huge comfort to the Jews of those days, and it should be a huge comfort to the believer today as well, that God is not just sitting up in heaven twiddling his thumbs, but that he's actively involved in our lives day in and day out. That's an important thought, an important fact for us to remember as well. And instead of the Lord just watching things unfold, he is actively involved and he's engaging in steering the world and steering the events of, of history as he reveals his larger plan. Now today, 
we dive deeper into the chiasm, actually to that to its main point, if you may, as we get into step number C. And uh, step C and its corresponding alternate point of C prime uh, provides the point of this whole structure. What is trying to be the main thrust, if you may. And we find here that it is in this chapter that the Lord humbles the king uh, of Babylon. He is the very man that God had placed in authority. We read in chapter number two that God had given Nebuchadnezzar this power. And that is to say that wherever his foot stepped, he had authority. That was to say that wherever, whatever person he had come in contact with, he would have authority over them. We even said that the chapter number two went as far as the saying that if, if whatever beast, it didn't matter what it, where it was or what, what it was, that God ordained that Nebuchadnezzar be in charge and his power came from God himself. But we read here in chapter number four that this man who now seemingly has all power in the world is humbled by the one who has all power. And this is the main point, that God is in charge, that God is in control. Now, ultimately, he is brought low and he will eventually be restored as we move, move through chapter number four. We'll, we'll recognize that and see those things taking place. But the point in these circumstances will become evident as we go through the chapter but most, perhaps maybe the most interesting, not the most need to know, but part of the most interesting thing is how chapter 4 is written. Notice how chapter 4 opens up. Nebuchadnezzar, the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in the, uh, all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. We find here that this chapter is written from the first person perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, we know that Daniel is the author, human author, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in, in essence, the Lord has allowed Daniel, if you may, to kind of be like the, the, the secretary. He's sitting there as Nebuchadnezzar is dictating this story, as he's relaying this story and helping to, to reiterate what had taken place. And so you could say, if you may, that uh, as it was penned by Daniel, we could say that even still it is the only chapter, the only portion of Scripture to be written or be constructed by a Gentile individual and a pagan one at that. That, 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 that might not interest you like it interested me, uh, but I thought that to be pretty unique in how it was structured and how it was written out. But as we begin in this chapter, I want you also to take note in the fact that chapter number four is its own mini chiasm in and of itself as well. Uh, and it's structured in a A, B, B prime, A prime structure. It starts off with chapter number uh, four, verse number one through verse number three, where it begins with the king praising the Lord of heaven for his mighty works. B, uh, it moves for, uh, into uh, an account of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, followed by Daniel's interpretation of it and its fulfillment. And then A prime backing out, and it ends with the king praising the Lord once more. So if you have your Bibles open, if chapter four happens to be on the same page, or if you want to just turn the page, you'll notice one through chapter... Verses 1 through 3 is Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord, and the last verses of chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord again. So it starts, moves its way in, and backs back out in the same structure. So it's its own mini chiasm, if you may. But let's begin tonight with the first of those four parts in this chiasm. With number one, I want you to notice with me this evening the throne's honor. In verses 1 through 3, we read, and we already read verse number 1, let's re reiterate it again. It says, Nebuchadnezzar 
the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. And so as we enter into chapter 4 and verse number 1, Nebuchadnezzar opens his account by addressing all of the people in the entire world. You look at that and you kind of like, does this man not learn his lesson? Notice his grandstanding here in verse number one where he says to all the people, to all the nations and languages and all that dwell in the earth. It may seem a bit braggadocious almost, if you may, a little bit assumptuous, if you may, to think that his words would reach the entire world. I mean, after all, Twitter was not a thing back in, in the Bible days. Facebook was not prevalent. Uh, there was no CNN or Fox News or NBC or anything like that with satellites and, and, and vans driving around trying to be the first on the scene to break the late and, and newest news or anything along those lines. So especially in those days, for him to think that his words were going to go across all the world and that every single individual in the world was going to hear them is a little bit presumptuous, don't you think? But that kind of fits with his attitude already. Here is a man who receives a, 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 a vision, a dream, and he is told in this, by this dream, by the God of heaven, that he's going to be the most powerful man in all the world, that he represents the beginning of an of a age of the Gentiles that's going to kick off with his kingdom, and it's going to be powerful, and it's going to be the most elegant and the most powerful one of them all, by the way. And then as he sends his troops into Jerusalem to tear down the walls of Jerusalem and to destroy the temple and to bring the rest of the remnant of Jerusalem back to Babylon with them, then he, of course, in his heart and in his mind says, I've just destroyed the God of this one who gave me the power, so I am all-powerful. There must not be any other kingdoms coming. And so from the onset, it looks like he hasn't learned anything. Even after seeing the three Hebrew young men in the fire, saved by Jesus Christ himself, and making a decree that no one should say anything wrong or bad against the God of the Hebrews, it seems as if he hadn't learned anything. But then verse number two and verse number three seems to change things quickly. But let me just say this, if I may, that as we get into chapter number four here and see him stating that he's speaking to all the people of the earth, He's merely acting on the premise in addressing the entire world as his subject because the Lord has made him ruler over the entire world. I mean, it wasn't as, it, uh, honestly, we can try to, we can almost get a bad uh, ra- uh, uh, viewpoint of him at this point, but truly he's just responding to what God's already told him about, about him, his own self. Furthermore, where are we reading these accounts from right now? The word of God. And his word will last for what? Forever. So in the, in, the, in, the day, in, in the Bible days when it was happening, when it was being pinned, it, would, it was going around and being, uh, being, uh, being uh, sent around and the words were going around. And here we are reading it today. And for all of eternity, his words will stand as a testimony of what God had done in his own life. A pagan king. So maybe he wasn't so off base talking, saying that I'm going to say it to the whole world. Nevertheless, we truly ought to focus in on his gratitude in verses 2 through 3. We notice his grandstanding, but notice his gratitude in verses 2 through 3. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. 
How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. In verse number two, he says it seemed good for him to declare the good things that the Lord had done. And I think we ought to take something from his notebook there. We ought to declare the good things of our Lord. But can I tell you tonight that he's actually referring to the events that he's about to speak about? He's in verses 1 through 3, he says, I'm going to make this decree out. I'm going to say it to the whole world. And it's good for me to say this because the Lord has been good in allowing this to happen. And he's speaking about the events that we're about to come to. Now, if you're not familiar with chapter number 4, it might shock you uh, 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 when we get to it as to him saying, man, this is good that it happened. If you are familiar with chapter number 4 and what he's about to speak about, you're thinking, why is he saying that it's good that these things happen? But he is speaking directly about what events are about to unfold and what had taken place. He's looking back on what had already happened prior to addressing what had happened and saying it was good that God allowed it and that he's in power and he is in, he, he's almighty and his kingdom is lasting from generation to generation. And as you read through his account, we might struggle with why th- he thinks it's so great. In fact, As you read through chapter number four, it almost reads as a mini version of the story of Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But we find here that not only that, but we find secondly, the effect of this experience for Nebuchadnezzar was to declare that the Lord's kingdom was everlasting. Now, this is a very important uh, summary statement, if you may, of chapter number four, uh, because earlier, earlier we learned that the Lord had established and he'd already chosen to allow certain empires to rise up and to be in control, but they would only last for a certain time, a generation or two or whatever the case might be, and then another one would come along and take over and, and, and take, uh, take place of the kingdom before. They would only last for a generation or so. And then another would come. And this process would happen throughout history. And it's still taking place even today. But Nebuchadnezzar, the one who kicked off this whole storyline of events of kingdom, replacing kingdom, replacing kingdom, is now saying that the God of heaven, his reign and rule reigns for all generations. So here's a man recognizing who ultimately was in control. See, even the man who received power to rule has come to recognize that his own ruling was subject to the authority of God himself. Remember, this king is a Gentile king. This king is a pagan king. This king is, a, is the one who sent his armies into Jerusalem to, to, to bring in captive all of the people of Israel and killing people in the, in the process of doing so. And he's saying that I realize now that the God of the Hebrew people, his rule reigns forever and ever. And now he begins to start to tell the story of his dream. We see number one, the throne's honor. But number two tonight, I want you to notice the troubled heart. As we read through chapter uh, four and and notice with me in verse number four we'll read through verse number 18 tonight as we close out the message this evening met through those portions of scripture he says in verse number four i nebuchadnezzar 
was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a, a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, uh, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, uh, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret, secret tr troubleth thee, tell me the vision of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached into the, uh, unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The, bre uh, the beast of the field had sh uh, shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwell in uh, the bows thereof. And all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a, and, and a holy one came down from heaven and cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots uh, in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from a man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand uh, by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it uh, the basis of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me this interpretation, but thou art able. For the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Once again, we find the king receiving a, a vision, a dream. We've found this already in chapter number two. It kind of correlates and corresponds, if you may, in the fact that he's receiving another dream again. Uh, it, and truthfully, uh, both of them work in the same way. They were both a frightful vision. As we read there in verses 4 through 9, he said that as he was laying on his bed uh, in his house, uh, he, had a, a th he had that dream which made him afraid, it says in verse number 5, and his visions of his head troubled him. And so it, it, it frightened him, it troubled him. The events that were being talked about and that were being portrayed in these visions uh, concerned him, just like in chapter number 2 as well. The only difference is that in chapter number 2, he, he called all of his magicians, he called all of his wise men together, and he said, all right, I need you to tell me what my dream means. And they said, okay, great, king, tell us what the dream is. He said, no, first you've got to tell me my dream, and then tell me the interpretation. Uh, that way I know you're telling me the truth. However, in this case, in chapter number four, it seems like he's super quick and willing to tell anybody 
what his dream was so that he could receive an interpretation. One might ask, why such a difference? Why is chapter number two, he's not telling anybody the dream and still insisting on an interpretation? And now in chapter number four, he's giving everyone the dream and still wanting an interpretation. Well, I will say this, chapter number four is, the, is how the events normally would take place. When a, when a king would have a vision, when they'd have a dream, and they, need, they felt like it meant something, they would call their wisest men together, tell them what the dream was, and then ask for an interpretation. That's the normal process. That's a standard operating procedure. Chapter number two was odd. Chapter number two was not normal. Now, for whatever reason he chose to act in such a way in chapter number two, I don't know, but we do know this, that ultimately God had a, his hand in it to bring Daniel onto the scene so that the king could meet him and Daniel could give the vision and the interpretation thereof. Now, what I do, we do see, though, is this, that, um, that by the same token, uh, we might even wonder why this king spent his time asking the magicians and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers and all that, since they were of no good back in chapter number two. I mean, after all, he said, hey guys, you're supposed to be the ones that know everything. You're supposed to be able to see into the future and, and you know, you got the crystal ball and all these things and you're supposed to know everything. Tell me what my dream is and then tell me the interpretation. You know what they said? There's no one that can do that. Not even us. Well, I thought you were the most wise people in all the world. I thought you had special powers to accomplish these things. And you're telling me you can't? And they couldn't do anything. And it was Daniel that gave the dream. Daniel that gave the interpretation. So one might wonder why in the world is he even wasting his time with these knuckleheads in the first place? But let's remember, after Daniel gave the interpretation, what did the king do? He promoted him. And he promoted him to a very high position as well. Now, I'm assuming that part of the problem might have been the fact that Daniel wasn't just sitting around the palace twiddling his thumbs. He was probably out doing his job because we already know that Daniel and his men, they were found 10 times better in their work. They were men that went about their work strongly and they, took it, they were dedicated to it as well. And so Daniel wouldn't have been one slacking. Daniel wouldn't have been just sitting around to kind of you know, holding the, uh, holding the countertop up as he's leaning, you know what I'm saying? Like, he would have been busy about his job, so he probably wasn't actively ready, and he might have not been around the palace to be able to interpret the dream. But it's also possible, though, that the king had an idea already what the dream meant. Because honestly, as we go through the dream, it's not hard to see that it is what it's speaking about it's it's actually unlike the dream in chapter number two it's a whole lot easier to see its interpretation uh in and of itself and so maybe the king had an idea and he was afraid that if daniel came to give the interpretation that he would just solidify what the king had in his mind what it thought he thought it might have meant so he was looking for a second opinion if you may hoping that maybe these wise guys over here would give him some better news and, uh, and uh, help out in that way. But when he turns to his regular counselors, as predicted, they're unable to help at all. They give no explanation. What are these guys, a bunch of quacks or something? Like, why, how how they even get into this position? It seems like they can't do anything. You know, it, 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 I, I, I picture them a lot like the road workers. You know, when you're driving down the road and there's construction going on on the road, 
nobody's ever working. They're just standing there holding signs, watching each other. And then here on Mosin Road, they've got the, the, the pilot car, right? Wait here for the car. You wait, and you wait, and you wait. The only one that's working is actually driving a vehicle in the air conditioner while everyone else is waving, holding signs. How did any of this work get done? Because I've never seen him. I'm just imagining that's how these magicians and astrologers and soothsayers, that's how they were. It seemed like they were good for nothing and worthless. So why didn't these guys give an interpretation? Could they not have figured something out? Could they not have even at least taken a guess? Again, because of how plain and straightforward this dream seems to be, it is possible that they too had an idea of what it meant. And we're afraid of being the ones to bring the bad news to the king. Finally, we've come to verse number 8. And, and uh, the king describes the, the dream to Daniel. And he repeats the fact that Daniel, we read in verse number 8, that uh, he had renamed him. He said, last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. He identifies with a pagan god here. And uh, by which he got Daniel's name, of course. But he sees Daniel's power as coming from other gods. And this is important that we, we note that because he respects the power that Daniel is able to demonstrate from his God. But that demonstration hasn't been, ha, the demonstration of his power in and of itself is not quite yet enough to get it through the king's heart that there is only one true God. Because he's still identifying with his gods by saying, here's Daniel, Belshazzar, who's named after my God. And then he proceeds in verses 10 through 18, as we read, to explain the vision to Daniel, the dream to Daniel. And we see it is not only a fearful or a frightful vision, but we see also it is a forewarning vision. See, the, tr the, the dream, it centers around a great tree, as we read there in verses uh, 9, through, uh, 9 through 18. And it reaches all the way up to the sky so high that all the inhabitants of the world can see it. Now, that seems odd, because on a round earth, that is completely impossible. And there's this fringe group out there that still believes that there's a flat earth. And they use verses like this to try to be their proof text as to say, and even the Bible says that the, the earth is flat. Now, I'm just going to be straightforward and honest with you. As you go through the book of Daniel, I'm not going to make, big, make a big deal of it because there's not one error in the word of God. But I will say this, that people will try to use things like that to say that there is error or whatever. It's good to at least have a, a working understanding. The, and the reason behind this is very simple, all right? Here's the deal. The, God has given the king a vision concerning himself and judgment that is going to come upon himself. Back in those days, no one knew that the world was round. They all thought it was flat. So if God would have revealed, him, uh, revealed what was going to take place and given Nebuchadnezzar a dream that included a round earth instead of a flat one, which he thought actually took, was, was the case, Nebuchadnezzar would have walked away from the dream not concerned about what happened with the tree or, or, or anything. He would have been coming out saying, hey guys, I just found out that the earth is round. That would have been the takeaway. That wasn't God's purpose of the, of the vision. 
God's purpose of the dream was to give him the, the understanding that there was a judgment coming. So on a flat world, yes, one could see a tree that would reach all the way into the heavens and could be seen from anywhere. But we find here that Nebuchadnezzar says about this tree that it fed everyone. It was like Eden itself, like the Garden of Eden itself. It took care of everyone. All the inhabitants of the world were protected from it, or by it, I should say. The fruit was abundant. The branches were home for every bird. The shade was able to cover every beast. But then as the dream goes along, an angel comes from heaven and delivers a drastic warning and a drastic message. He says, cut down the tree. And then it even goes as far as the saying that as it's being cut down, he does violence to every part of the tree as well. Notice as it says there, verse number 12, uh, verse number, I'm sorry, uh, verse number 14. And he cried aloud and said, thus, hew down the tree, cut it down. And cut off its branches, shake off his leaves, scatter his fruits, let every beast get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. He says, just completely obliterate it all the way down to the stump. Don't take out the stump, leave the stump, but do just do tremendous violence to every part of the tree. Only the, the stump, the root, will remain. And that stump will be shackled by bronze and iron bands. And then the stump is allowed to simply sit in this field of grass. But then notice as we read along here, notice pick up in verse number 15. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with the bands of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Now notice, let his, what's the next word? Let, uh, I'm sorry, and let what? His portion. Up until this point, he's been, the, the vision and Nebuchadnezzar has been giving the, the, what has taken place in the vision. He's talking about a tree. Now all, of a sudden, now all of a sudden we notice a pronoun change. He speaks of it as a person, as an individual. He says, let his portion be with the beast. It becomes clear at this point that the tree stands for a man. And that's why I said earlier that the vision, the dream itself, was kind of, kind of simply interprets itself. This tree represents someone that is mighty. This tree represents someone that is powerful. This tree represents someone who has a far reach. This tree represents someone who has authority to protect or destroy others. Who was, the, who was this vision talking about? Nebuchadnezzar the king. And so we, we see it clearly as he gives the, the, uh, the outline of this that this man uh, will ultimately live in the wild like an animal. He'll receive the mind and heart of a beast, acting like an animal. And this strange period in this man's life will continue for a period of sevens, the scripture tells us. Now, the reference to seven is not defined immediately right here. But as we'll see in the interpretation, I believe it refers to actually seven years. And we'll talk about that. We won't get that to that today. It'll have to be next week. But it says for a period of sevens, which I believe speaks of seven years. And then the angel declares in the dream that this has come to pass as the result of the decision of the holy ones. Notice there in verse number um, 17. This matter is the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones. There's an S at the end of that. Holy ones. At first, 
we might just suggest that it's speaking about the angels, the watchers, the ones that came to deliver the message. But one must remember that angels don't make decisions. What was the job of an angel? They're simply a messenger. They deliver the message. They deliver the instructions. They deliver what, and, and instruct on what has already been decided upon. And so the more reasonable conclusion is that the holy ones refers to the Godhead itself. So here we would find just another Old Testament example or Old Testament reference to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, if you may. And, uh, and it is the fact that the Godhead had decided the fate of this man. Finally, the reason given for this man's strange downfall is, to, of course, to ensure that he understood that his power and his rule did not come from himself, but it came from above. That's the reason behind these events, the vision, to help understand that the man that is being spoken of, which we know will be ultimately Nebuchadnezzar, that his power came from above. So when we go back to chapter, one, uh, chapter number 4 and verses 1, 2, and 3, and we ask the questions as to saying, why is Nebuchadnezzar telling the whole world that it was a good thing that God did these things? We're beginning to understand that Nebuchadnezzar is, be is truly having a change of heart. He's truly having a change of mind of realizing that it is God who establishes and takes away. God gave him the power. And God had the power to take it away from him as well. As you could say, easy come, easy go. And that's what is trying to get across to Nebuchadnezzar. So here, we're not, we've not even gotten to the interpretation wholly yet. We're going to talk about that more next week. But we find a man who, we, as we read about him in Scripture, he comes on the scene just destroying people, destroying lands, taking everyone captive. He goes into Jerusalem and captures the most brightest and the most talented and the, most, and the strongest of, of, of Jerusalem, takes them captive and brings them to Babylon with him. Of course, now he's, he has established himself as the ruler of the known world at the time, so even the remnant that was left in Jerusalem was still under his authority and his rule. Years go by, and there's some insurrection that has taken place. There's fighting that has taken place. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had enough with these Jewish people fighting against me. And so he sends in his armies to destroy the walls of Jerusalem, to destroy the temple. And he brings all the remnant that was left in Jerusalem back to Babylon. And that's where we have the beginning of chapter number three, of course. And he says, all right, now, to show how powerful I am, I'm, after all, the head of gold that was in that statue that Daniel got the interpretation from your God, and I've just destroyed that God, so I am the most powerful being in all the world. I'm going to make this 90-foot statue made out of pure gold that points to my power and my majesty, and everyone, as you're being marched back into this, into this city, you're going to have to bow whenever you hear the music play. But Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow. They stand firm. They, and so Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, I'll show you how powerful I am. I'm going to throw you into that burning, fiery furnace. Turn up as hot as you can and throw them in. And when he throws them in, he thinks he's, he's done away with them. When actually all he's done is done away with his own men. 
because that fire comes out and engulfs them. We learned about that last week, of course. And then, of course, as he looks into the midst of the fire, he finds Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing unharmed. Uh, they're loose from, their, from being bound, and there's a fourth one in there, like the Son of God. Jesus Christ is standing there in, in there with him. Nebuchadnezzar says, come on out of there, guys. He asks them some questions. Finally, he says, listen. Uh, listen, here's what I need you to do. Uh, I, I need you to, 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 to just, uh, are you okay? Is there anything wrong with you? Like, I don't, even smell, uh, I don't even smell the coals. I don't even smell the fire, the smoke on you. This has been so mighty. This, is, this, this event has been so powerful. I make a decree that there's no one in this land that can say anything against their God. And now he's revealing a situation that took place. And let me just give you a sneak peek if you don't know what's about to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is, is the one who this tree represents. It's, it is showing the fact that God says, I put you in power, bud. And I'm going to show you how powerful I am by taking you out of power because he made this man go mad. He lived in the wilderness, out in the, out in the, out in the wilderness by himself, acting like a wild beast. We'll read on, his hair grew long, his fingernails grew, grew long, he ate from the fields like an animal, and after seven years, God restored his sanity and put him back in the place, into authority. I don't know about you, I'm, again, I'm not preaching next week's message, but I don't know about you, but I, find, I think it'd be hard for America to accept the rule of a president after he had gone mad and ate, ate it from a field for seven, seven years. But God put that man, Nebuchadnezzar, in place. He took him out for seven years and made him look like a fool. And he put him right back in the place to show how powerful he is. To show, show what he, how, how mighty of a God he is. And so rather than give commentary on the dream itself, I'll, 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 we'll speak more about it as we get into the ter- interpretation and to weigh into the significance of these things. But while we wait till next week, I want you to consider this. Here's the takeaway from tonight. The reason why Nebuchadnezzar was able to start chapter 4 in the way that he did is because it is good to honor the Lord for sorrow that leads to repentance. Here's a man who was stooped in pride and his attitude was changed quickly. It took seven years of judgment to do it, but I promise you that the moment that he lost his mind, if there was anything in him at all that could recognize it, he recognized that God had done this. And his pride went right out the window. So what I'm saying tonight, it is good to honor the Lord for sorrow that leads to repentance. You ever, do you ever done something and you know it was wrong, you know it was against the word of God, you know it was against God's will, and it didn't work out? It's good for you to say, God, thank you for it not working out. As long as it led you to repentance. It's good to honor the Lord for sorrow that leads to repentance. Number two takeaway, and we're closing tonight. It is good when God troubles our heart in order to get our attention. You say, why is this taking place? I just feel like I can't get through this situation. I can't figure out why God would allow this. Well, I'm not saying that God, cause, uh, that God causes all bad things to happen in your life, but sometimes God allows bad things to happen in your life to get your attention. And it is good when God troubles our hearts in order to get our attention. 
So would we learn a lesson from Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile pagan king tonight? Or are we going to have to learn it the hard way? Because after all, that's the title of the message tonight. Learning the hard way. Because that's, how, that's why, how Nebuchadnezzar had to do it. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way to recognize God for who he was. Are we going to learn from the, from, the, uh, from the story and the narrative that God has allowed us to read from the book of Daniel? Or are we going to have to be like Nebuchadnezzar? Are we going to have to learn the hard way? Our Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the message tonight and your word. And Lord, I'm excited about getting into even the, re- the rest of this portion of Scripture next week. As we uh, consider the interpretation, all the events that took place in those seven years as Nebuchadnezzar was was taken out of power. And God, we think about how powerful and, and mighty and, and awesome you are to actually put him back into power as well. And Lord, I ask now that myself and that everyone in the church, anyone who might have been watching by way of the internet tonight, that we would not have to learn the hard way like Nebuchadnezzar, but that we would learn from his example, and that we would be quick to magnify you, that we would put you in your rightful place on the throne of our heart, that we would not have to uh, experience, experience troubles that, so that we might end up being brought to repentance. That you wouldn't have to trouble our hearts uh, so that we might worship you. But Lord, help us to exalt you and magnify you for who you are, knowing that in the midst of even the craziest of circumstances, you're still on the throne. And anything that happens only happens because you've allowed. And if you've allowed... It ultimately corresponds with something in your greater plan. Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to live it. Help us to accept it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a prayer request card that has not yet been turned in, hold it up high. The match is standing in the back. He'll grab it real quick from you, and then he'll bring me the rest. I'm going to check out here on Facebook and YouTube to see if there's any uh, prayer requests that have been dropped there tonight as well. And uh, mention those this evening if so. And um, thank you for the magic. Oh, and I don't see anything there. Let me look, switch over here. All right, let me give you these here this evening. They're on these cards. Miss Lydia is, um, is asking prayer for Mrs. Debbie Morris uh, and family grieving in the loss of her mother this past Monday. And uh, so be in prayer for Mrs. Morris, of course, uh, Mrs. Morris is the pastor's wife of Steve Morris up there at Sun and Shield in Marana. And so be in prayer for their family and the loss of her mother. Miss Sue is, is praising the Lord tonight um, that she doesn't have any more doctor's appointments this month. And so praise the Lord for that. I know she's had one right after another after another. And so praise the Lord that she's got a little bit of a break at least in that. And uh, so praise the Lord for that. Miss Tana is praising the Lord tonight. Miss Sue, that you're here. And uh, we do praise the Lord that you're able to be here as well. And, uh, and uh, it's just a little update there as well. We'll, make, we'll reflect that in the prayer bulletin. Uh, Quentin is asking prayer tonight. Uh, finally got a date for his second interview for the job in Japan. And that'll be on November the 11th, right? Is that right, reading right? So November the 11th will be his interview. Be in prayer for that. Pray for God's grace and will. And that he will show exactly what he wants to be accomplished. And so be in prayer for Quentin and for that interview on the 11th. Miss Sandy is asking prayer for Brother Ed. He's, in, uh, he's got knee pain from uh, osteoarthritis. Uh, he's very, has, uh, it's very painful at this time. So uh, be in prayer that they'll be able to help him with that, give him maybe some, 
uh, something to help with that, uh, uh, that situation. Then also eye problems as well. It has an upcoming appointment. So be in prayer for Brother Ed and, uh, and that situation there. Brother Sam is asking prayer for, um, for the Rolstons. And these down here are not related to the Rolstons, right? Okay, and so just be in prayer for the Rolstons tonight. And then he's praising the Lord, retirement orders. Uh, so that was approved and everything squared away. Well, not squared away, but processing forward. So praising the Lord for that. Debt cleared, uh, new home on post as well. And also praising the Lord for all that helped them move. And so if you're not aware with what has taken place uh, this weekend in their life, uh, they, for several weeks at least, we're having major plumbing issues and uh, just couldn't get it fixed and all that. And uh, the, uh, the Lord opened up the doors for them to move down the road, actually to a bigger place, which is a blessing. And uh, there was just tons of people that helped on Saturday. And uh, praise the Lord for all the help there. Praise the Lord for his work in their life as well. All right. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. And if you do, uh, of course, we would like to find a prayer partner. Find yourself a prayer partner this evening. Pray for as long or for as little as you'd like. And when you're finished praying, you're, you're uh, welcome, of course. Feel free to dismiss. Just remember those who are still in here praying, not to disturb them. So just try to be uh, courteous to them. And, of course, if you'd like to... to uh, to fellowship and, and talk with one another. Uh, make sure to do it out there in the hall, but keep the, t the, uh, the uh, voices down for people praying, for discipleship that's clear, uh, finishing up, and for the classes that are finishing up down there as well. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you again for being here tonight, and then you'll be dismissed after the prayer.